The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I'll ask that you turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. If you'll turn there, let me confess to you, there's been a little shift. I was going to do Herod the Great this week, but I want to stay chronological. So we're going to look at the King from the East. Uh, and uh, in our series, The Kings of Christmas. Last week, Caesar Augustus. This week, the King from the East. Next week, Herod the Great. And then on Christ Sunday, Christ Himself, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So looking forward to doing that with you. And would you look with me in Matthew chapter 2? Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to uh, begin at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the peoples, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, speaking of Micah, And it's found in Micah 5, 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For whom, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him... Bring me word that I, too, may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy may this, the word read in your hearing, be preached for you. Please be seated. Kings of Christmas is the series. It was four sermons. Last week was the first one. And it was the king that we first encounter in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. His name, his title was Caesar Augustus. His name was Gaius Octavius, or Octavian as he is known 
in uh, most of our history books. Uh, and um, he is the one that gave the decree carried out in the days of Herod the Great, another king that we're going to look at next week. And it was done under the governorship of a military political governor by the name of Quirinius. Uh, he will later be replaced by a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. And, um, and, it was, um, and it was administered, it was the first of a number of them. Uh, we know of two that are recorded in the Bible, this one and then the next one that's administered 14 years later. This is a series of registration, census, taxation, military distribution. It's got all kinds of purposes. Um, Octavius was quite the administrator, and he's the one that, that established Pax Romana, the peace of Rome so that you could travel anywhere at any time. The road systems he nurtured and developed. Um, the the lo- allowing local areas that they ruled to keep their local religions was something that he did as well. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. What he didn't know is Julius Caesar had adopted him as his son. And when Caesar was assassinated on the floor of the Senate, it became known through the reading of his will that he would be the next emperor, which he was and which he served. And we find out under this decree that he has made. So it was the study of this king, and I entitled it King or Pawn. Now, a lot of people, of course, would, quib- would uh, quake in his presence as king, and many would, um, when they read the scripture, say, well, he's a pawn. See, uh, God's using this king. He's really a pawn in the hands of God, as, he is a, as God is sovereignly working through him to give the decree that then sends Joseph and Mary all the way to Bethlehem, and that fulfills the Micah 5-2 prophecy given hundreds of years earlier. And while I'm kind of drawn to that interpretation, I just can't settle there. I don't think he's a pawn. I think he's a king. I think God ordained him to be a king. I think he had kingly powers. He had kingly power. He had kingly decrees. He did all of the things. He's really acting as a king. God, in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes, does not have to reduce or diminish persons or their positions. Remember, he's king of kings, not just pawns. He's king of kings. And he actually rules and reigns over carpenters who make a decision under a sovereign God not to leave their wife back at home to have the baby. But in compassion, instead of leaving her, brings her with him 90 90 mile journey so that she is there and delivers in Bethlehem. He's God over and sovereign over Joseph and Mary and a king. Even the greatest emperor in the history of Rome, Caesar, he's king of kings. He has the he has the heart of the king in his hand and turns it wheresoever he wishes. So God's sovereignty doesn't need to be explained by the diminishing of those with upon whom and through whom and with whom he accomplishes his purposes. So that's why we landed at this point that the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, is real history, real people, real places, real times, real events. You can go back and check the history. Was there an edict? Was there a 14-year edict that began to be put in place by Octavius? Was, uh, what do the records of Rome say? What about Bethlehem? What about, um, what about uh, Nazareth? What about Jerusalem? All of these are real places, real people, real events, and it's really happened. This is real history. Luke 2 doesn't start off once upon a time. Or in a far country, 
a long way away. Does it start that way? It's not fable. It's not myth. It's real history. But here's what you learn is that real history is really his story. That's what we learn. Real history is ultimately his story at work through carpenters, teenage virgins, and the most powerful king in Rome. Well, now we come to another king, unnamed, a king of the east. Now, Harriet, why are you saying that? Will you all hang with me just a minute? Here's what we're going to do. Where I read, where I started reading, again, you'll notice this is historical narrative. This isn't fable. How does it start off? In the days after the birth of, there's been a historical event. Jesus has been born. And it's in the days of Herod. And Jesus had been born in Bethlehem in Judea. Note places, things, times, people, event. This is real history that's taking place. And in this real historical moment, magi show up, wise men show up from the east in Jerusalem at Herod's palace. And they show up. With a specific question. Now, I know some of you, and I understand we've just sung, we just sung three different songs that refer to three wise men. <laughs> we don't know how many there were, okay? We, we really don't know how many. Now, most of the, most everybody says there's three because later on, when they worship him, they give how many gifts? They're sitting hard. Three, alright? And, uh, gold, uh, frankincense and myrrh. So they give three gifts. So, well, three gifts, three kings. Well, honestly, we don't really know how many gifts they gave. They made the Bible may under the Holy Spirit just focus on those three. It may have been more. We don't know how many wise men there were. Um, could all we know is there's got to be two or more because it's plural. That's all we know. I mean, it could have been a couple of hundred. In fact, it says the city was all stirred up. So that might have been something. I don't know. Uh, I know the city was stirred up because Herod was stirred up. Well, why was his city stirred up when Herod was stirred up? I'm glad you asked that question. That's what we'll answer next week when we take a look at Herod uh, from this same text of Scripture. And uh, we find out the biblical lessons from that. But right now, we've got magi who have come from uh, the king of the east. Now, why would I say that? So why did they show up? Well, we know why they showed up. They showed up to ask a very specific question. They're looking for some intelligence in order to accomplish something. They have come to worship the king of the Jews. They have come to do what? Worship him. That's that's astonishing. And they've not only come to worship the king of the Jews, they've come with a specific question. Where is he born? Born. In other words, where is he? He's already born, they assume. Where is he born? And he was born king and he was not only born king, he was born king of the Jews. Not just a king, a very specific king. King of the Jews. So the questions begin to abound. Not only simple questions like how many gifts actually were there and, and how, many, uh, how many magi were there. But even more, why would they ask that question? Why would they show up? At Herod's palace in Jerusalem, in the nation of Israel, asking that question, where is he born king of the Jews? Why would they do that? In fact, who are they? Who are they? Why would they do that? And what did they do? So why don't y'all take a look at that with me? I want to walk you through it from the text, if I can. Who are they? Well, they're called magi. 
Now, what are magi? That's a very technical term for a certain guild of people. The closest I can give you as an American is the cabinet of the president of the United States. So the cabinet of the president of the United States is about the closest advisors, special advisors with the imprimatur of the one they advise. In other words, when they show up, the king shows up. Just like the cabinet, if somebody, if there's a royal birth or a, or a royal wedding or a royal funeral and the president of the United States can't get there, many times he'll send one of the members of his cabinet according to a certain ranking usually and they'll, and he'll send one of them. So <clears throat> that's what has happened here is that this king from the east has sent his cabinet. It's really hard for me to get this across, but these, this is a guild of people. They're, they show up all the time in the Bible. You've got them in Egypt. They show up in the kingdom of Assyria. They show up in the kingdom of Babylon. They show up in the kingdom of, um, of Medo Persia. They show up in the kingdom of Greece. And they show up in the kingdom uh, of Rome. They show up constantly because what kings needed was intelligence, advice, and counsel from, quote, learned people. Who are they? They are scholars. They have extensive libraries. They give themselves, they exist to study. They exist to study the disciplines of the day that were valued. History. Religion. Um, philosophy and two very important ones in those days of pagan wisdom there was the pervert now we know the, the, the star the heavens declared the glory of God right God reveals himself in creation including the heavens but they had perverted that into making into making their reading of the heavens the wisdom so they had these disciplines of astronomy and astrology. Now, sometimes when you get into this position, this is a power position. This, if you're this, the only thing bigger than you is a king. And by the way, if the king sends you, when you go somewhere, it's like the king showed up. I'm here in the name of the president. I'm here in the name of the king. And uh, so you get to where you really like this power. You like this prestige. And the more you can astound that king and the more you can control him, the more power and prestige you can get. So what I'm trying to tell you is I don't think these are kings. I know we sing, we three kings. I think these are magi. I think they're part of the cabinet. Can a magi become a king? Yes. But by and large, you don't call kings magi. Magis exist to serve kings. But their presence is the presence of the king of the east whom they served. When they showed up, he showed up. Now, sometimes these guys get addicted and intoxicated with power. And so magi, in some cases, went into the black arts. And magi becomes the root for what? Magic. And those in the black arts and magic became known as, not magi, but magicians. We've got an account of that in your Bible, don't we? When Moses went and spoke to who? Pharaoh. He called his magicians, who engaged in the supernatural of the kingdom of darkness. 
But by and large, throughout the scripture, these are basically counselors, scholars, scientists, philosophers, teachers that are available to and serve at the pleasure of the king. And were there to not only give counsel, but there to accomplish royal tasks. And here some magi don't know how many have shown up in Jerusalem. That's who they are. Now, you've got some you've got some magi that you already know about, don't you? Where are they coming from? We saw his star from the east. They're coming from the east. What kingdoms would have been in the east historically? Well, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persian. And they're in your Bible in the Old Testament. In fact, Babylon makes three invasions of Israel. And their first invasion is to get some Potential wise men, and they get the up and inners of the society and take them into captivity. You know the names of four of them, don't you? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who became what? Counselors to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I don't know what all happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over a period of time, but I know Daniel remained a counselor. For 70 years. I know he served not only Nebuchadnezzar, but five dynasties. And I know he not only served Nebuchadnezzar in five dynasties, but he also served in two different empires, the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire. I do know those things about him, and I do know he was a magi of his day. He was a counselor, trusted, and was over all of the counselors. So it's people like that that are showing up from the remnant of those kingdoms. Now, Rome is in control of everything, but there are remnants of those kingdoms. Just like there's a remnant of Israel, there are remnants of those kingdoms that Rome is controlling. And from those those puppet kings, those kings have now sent their magi and, and, and from the east. And they have arrived in Jerusalem and they have arrived. That's who they are. And that's where and that's why they're there. And they are there as royal emissaries as well as royal counselors. Now, why are they there? Well, we don't have to worry about that, do we? We know why they're there. We're, they're there for a very specific purpose. They're looking for the king of the Jews. His, and, and, they, and why are they there looking for the king of the Jews? And they tell you, because his, notice, his star rose. Well, where in the world would you think his star has risen? They've come to Israel. They didn't just, okay, there's a star and we're going to go look. At, uh, uh, let me try to explain this. In those days, pagan lore was if you as an astrologer, the astronomist and the astrologers, if you saw a previously undiscovered star and that they would describe it, it rises and they have seen a star and the pagan philosophy, the pagan lore was every time you see a new star that represents either the birth, the death or the death and birth of a king. But notice, they didn't just go out looking to see when they saw the star, what king? They went to a specific nation and they asked for a specific king, king of the Jews. 
Now, why would they do that? Why would they be that specific? Why aren't they just, okay, I can understand. There's a star. You hadn't seen it before. All right, let's go find out who this king is and pay our abeyance. And why, when they go, they're not just there to affirm as a representative. They come to worship this king. They come to worship this king in the name of a king of the east. And they come specifically to Israel, specifically to Herod's palace, specifically to Herod, the appointed king by Rome over Israel at this time. And they go specifically to him and they ask him a very specific question. Where is he born king of the Jews? Well, Herod gets troubled. Everybody else gets troubled. And then Herod calls for his magi, his counselors. And he says, can you give me the answer to this question? But he knows who they're really talking about. Can you give me the answer to this question? Where is the Christ to be born? He knows exactly who to ask about when you're talking about king of the Jews. Even though he's not a Jew. And so they then say, well, Micah 5.2, same as last week. He's going to be born in Bethlehem hundreds of years ago. That was the prophet through Micah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, that this Jesus, uh, that this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, up pops Bethlehem again. Bethlehem, yeah. The place, Bethlehem, that crops up in your Bible. It's the place where Jacob arrives and his wife, Rachel, gives birth to his son, Benjamin, and she dies and is buried there. It's the place where Naomi and her her husband and her two sons leave to go to Moab. And then her son and her and her husband and her sons die. And she comes back with one daughter-in-law named Ruth, who meets a guy by the name of Boaz. And they get married. And here is the royal line in the tribe of Judah, because from Boaz will come Obed and Jesse And Jesse will have his sons. And then Samuel will come to Bethlehem to see the sons of Jesse and put his finger on the one that's not there. Call in the young one from the fields. His name is David. He is anointed. And is that David from David's city, Bethlehem, who, when he's encased by the Philistines, will say wistfully, Oh, that I could just one more time drink the water from the well of Bethlehem. And at his very thought, his mighty men go and they break in and they come back with a drink of water from the well from Bethlehem. And David Pours it out. Won't even drink it. He said this is sacred. This is not leadership. This is worship. And he pours it out as a drink offering. To the Lord himself. In praise to him. For what God had done through his men. It is this place. That the decree of Gaius Octavius sends. Joseph and Mary and Jesus is born and the announcement to the angels. And now Jesus is no longer in Bethlehem in a stable in Bethlehem. He is now in a house. 
In other words, no longer under in the stable, now in the house itself. So how long has he been there, folks? I don't have this. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to give you information today, but I can't give you what I don't know. I don't know how many magi there were, and I do not know how many, ultimately, how many gifts there were. I do know there were three, and three very important ones that the Holy Spirit led Matthew to emphasize. That may have been the only three, but I also don't know how long he was there. I do know it has to be a couple of days because he's no longer down in the stable in the manger now he's in the house so it has to be at least a couple of days maybe a couple of weeks or because Herod later will try to kill this Jesus and he'll go up to age two it may have been up to 22 or 23 months since the birth I don't know but I do know it's a real event and it really happened and these are real men who have come that are looking for Jesus and when they find out when they find out they then go to find him. But before I go further, I still haven't answered my question. Why did they say we want to see the king of the Jews? Well, I know you heard it earlier, but would you mind turning in your Bibles to Numbers 24 with me? Turn with me to Numbers 24. I know you've already read it, but I want you to see it. It's the fourth and final oracle of a prophet whom God had called. And that prophet uh, is, of course, Balaam. And in uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 24, this is what I think they are responding to. Numbers 24, a text in the Pentateuch that would have drawn their attention, particularly with their interest in astronomy and astrology, Balaam's first oracle is in chapter 23 and and second and 23, and then 24 gives the third and fourth oracle. Slip down, if you would, to verse 17. I don't want to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but look at verse 17. I see him, this anticipation, this sermon anticipating a Messiah. I see him, but not now. Fullness of time hasn't come. I behold him, but he's not near. The incarnate Christ is not yet near, for he has not yet been incarnate. A star, a star shall come out of who? Jacob, from the line of Jacob, whose name is Israel. And a scepter, what's a scepter? It is the symbol of regal authority. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. I believe it's that verse. Now, you may say to me, Pastor, uh, Pastor, uh, how did they get that verse? These magi, wisdom people in the East. Okay, at this point, everything I've said to you is just pure Bible, and I will go to the state for it. Okay? I've tried to be careful, not overstate what I know and, and what I don't, uh, or say what I don't know. But, I, so, but I'm going to tell you right now, I am now going to speculation and conjecture. But I want to call it sanctified speculation and conjecture. I want to call it even biblically directed and informed conjecture. I believe they knew this verse because they were from the east, a remnant of the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia. And guess who had been 
and who had been the head guy for 70 years in this in this position. His name was Daniel. And what do you do? You amass these extensive libraries. Would Daniel, this man who was faithful to the Lord, would he have brought his Bible to the library? Yes. What would have been Daniel's Bible? It's called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Therefore, since Daniel, for hundreds of years, that would have been part of the curriculum for wise men. And when they see a star they haven't seen, and they go to this text... And the star represents a king. And the text tells you this isn't any king. It's the king that comes from the line of Jacob. It's a king who bears the scepter for Israel. That sends them not on a search, but on a specific mission. And they come to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, to the palace of the appointed king and ask him, where is he born king of the Jews? And then when Herod tells them, he tells them, he says, when he gets the message, well, according to the prophets, he's in Bethlehem. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and search diligently in Bethlehem. And when you find him, I want you to come back and get word to me so that I can go and worship him like you. You go and worship him, search him diligently. And when you see him, I want you to come back and get me. Then I will come and worship him. So can I ask you all a question? Let's do uh, let's let's leave. Um, I mean, I hadn't heard a lot of amens today, but uh, uh, just I'll, I'll try to draw you in some way into participating with me today. Um, how many of you think that the. That the kings wanted to go find Jesus to worship him. How many people y'all think that? You think that? Amen. Okay, wonderful. Okay, three, three of you think that. That's wonderful. Where have you been at Christmas for the, your whole life? The Bible tells you that's what they want to do. They want to go worship him. And did they, when they get there, worship him? Okay, it's safe to say they wanted to worship him. Because when they got there, guess what they did? They worshiped him. How many of you believe that Herod wanted to go and worship him? No. Because what did he do? He tried to kill him. There's always a lot of deception at Christmas. There's always a lot of hypocrisy at Christmas. Well, he goes. They, they get up and they go. Now Watch. I want y'all to see this. Numbers 24 told them what that star was. Then Micah 5 sends them on a five-mile trip to Bethlehem. But when they get ready to leave, guess what they see again? The star. Guess where it leads them? To Bethlehem. So the word is guiding them, and God's providence is affirming the word with the star. And they get to the place. And when they get to the place, what do they do? They see Jesus and Mary, the babe and Mary. Then what do they do? They, this is an interesting translation. It says they rejoiced exceedingly. It really means they joyfully rejoiced. They rejoiced in their rejoicing. It's just, they just keep piling on joy words here. They rejoiced in their rejoicing. They were just overflowing with joy. This had become much more 
than just a mere royal task. This was coming to the king, and they didn't come to honor simply a king. They came to worship him. Now, folks, can I go into some speculation and not a flight where I'd love to go? But I'm going to give you a little bit. I can't imagine. Can you imagine the conversation that took place when they showed up and they're sitting there and Mary and, you know, what's his name? Jesus. Joseph said, can I tell you how I got his name? Can I tell you how I got his name? There's this angel. And he said, you shall call him Yahshua, Yahweh, Jehovah saves. And by the way, you know, that's not his name. It's Emmanuel. This is God with us. And then Mary, oh, yeah, that angel told me I was going to have a child. I'm a virgin. And that's in fulfillment of all these scriptures back here in Isaiah and also in Genesis 3.15. And that's, now I'm speculating. I don't know, but I just got to believe some conversation took place. But here's what I do know. When they saw Mary with her baby, they fell down. Now watch what the text says. You go check me. They worshipped him. Not Mary, not Joseph, not Jesus and Mary, him. And they gave gifts to him, not Mary. I'm sure Mary and Joseph made use of those gifts. I mean, how in the world are you going to get to, how are you going to get to Egypt and then back to Nazareth? Or a couple of years in Bethlehem, there's some time in Egypt and Exodus number two. How is all that going to take place? But they gave their gifts to him. Now, watch what it has said. They had come their way. They left Jerusalem on their way. And then when they were ready to leave, having worshipped, the Lord intervenes and warns them of what Herod is about to do and do to them. And they left Jesus to go a different way. That's what always happens in the lives of believers. But when they worshipped him, they then gave their gifts to him. Lavishly did they worship him. I'm not the first pastor to ever look at it. In fact, you've just sung it. Go check the two hymns that you just sung and their theology about the gift giving. Gold Gold, the currency of kings. Frankincense, incense, representing prayers and praise. You remember in the temple, the altar of incense that was kept by who? The priest. Myrrh. Their version of gardenias. <laughs> you ever gone to a funeral without gardenias? They would always bring myrrh. It was gloomy. It showed up at funerals. And what did Israel do to the prophets? They killed them. Myrrh. He's a prophet who will die. For his people. Incense. He's the priest. And the altar. Gold. He's king. Of kings. 
Lord of Lords. And oh, the blessing of these gifts for the trip that they were about to make. So here's your takeaway, and then I'll close in prayer with you. Uh, You might want to do this one by snapshot more than write it out, but I'll give it to you anyway. I've tried to work on this one for you, and I'll close in prayer after I give it to you. The unmistakable reality is that we, is that we, what do you learn from these magi who are sent by a king of the east? The unmistakable reality is that we who come to Christ, just like they did, will be marked by God-centered worship. Not worship-centered worship. God-centered worship. Not adulterated worship. God-centered worship. Are marked by God-centered worship and loving, trusting obedience to the King of Kings. When He gives you a direction, that's the way we go. And where does he send the kings? Just like he sent the demoniac. He sends them back home a safe way. Now they're his witnesses. Worshiping, witnessing. Those are the marks of those who have come to Christ. That when you come to Christ, it is marked by worship. Worship, worship which, by the way, is marked by giving. Folks, worship is not an event you attend to watch. It's something you do. And one of the things you do is give of the treasures he's already given to you. And it's lavishly and generously. This is not a preacher working on the year-end giving. This is me trying to share with you what a mark of the believer is. God-centered worship. And a mark of God-centered worship is participation. And a mark of participation is giving, which is why Paul says, that which you have determined to give, set it aside and bring it on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. And I understand, I understand, listen, please, I am not, I'm not a curmudgeon. I understand all the needs, uh, bookkeeping, um, um, uh, Providential hindrance, all the reasons for why there's online giving. I'm just, but I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is don't give up participation in worship. And one of the ways God has given. In fact, look at the negative illustration of it. Where do we see the division of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness? It's in the garden. Between who? Cain and Abel. What is the dividing line between Cain and Abel? Both showed up at the worship service, but Abel showed up with the gift of the first of the flock, the tithe, and sacrificial, the fat portions, tithe and offering. That's what he did. Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground. Last minute, let me tip God a little bit here. God had no regard for this worship. And it because of the offering. And he had regard for this. Both men are giving of their vocation. And it became the judgment of God. Or you fast forward to Nadab and Abihu. That God brings a lethal judgment upon them. But before he does, this is what he says to them. Who commanded you to bring this strange offering to me? Well, Harry, yes, Old Testament. Okay, well, let's go to New Testament. It's a worship service. 
Ananias and Sapphira are giving their check. But they lied. And they had to carry them out. But may I go from the negative to the positive? What you have purposed to do, bring on the first day of the week. Look at the gift from heaven. Do you know what's going to happen to all of you in the next couple of days? You know what's going to happen? Can I tell you what's going to happen? Somebody is going to give you a gift and you're going to look at I can just hear it right now. Some wife is going to say to her husband, guess who gave us a gift? Joe Smith. He did? Yeah. Did we get him a gift? No. Run out and get one quick. There's no, we are not going to get through a commercial Christmas without giving a gift back to the person that gave us a gift. Well, that's just not going to happen. Yet the Christian Christmas, <laughs> Jesus gives himself. Do we give ourselves to him? Who gave himself for us? If we do, it will be marked by participatory sacrificial worship. We will not rob God. Folks, listen. Don't rob God. Please don't rob God. I'm not telling you, go rob somebody else either. I'm just saying, don't rob God. But the key to not robbing God is not just checking the box. It's checking our hearts. These men saw him. Boom. Worshipped. Boom. Not only worshipped him, they gave their gifts to him. Then they followed him. They obeyed the divine intervention to go back home another way. Because that's what Jesus does. He works in the lives and guides us with his word, even in another way. Well, there's a lot more I'd love to say, but I don't really have time to say it. I'll just, I'll just uh, close in prayer by saying this. Uh, I love Matthew. I love how Luke brings us to down and outer Jewish shepherds. I love how Matthew brings us to up and inner Gentile kings and their emissaries. And I love how he does that. And then I love how he does that. And then he ends Matthew by the king of kings saying, here's these people with authority that come and bow and worship Gentile kings. And at the end, Jesus says, all authority has come to me. And Matthew ends it this way. They came and they worshipped him. And he said, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the what? Nations. The Gentile nations. At the birth, the Gentile nations come. And at his ascension, we're sent to the Gentile nations to hear of him. The Lord of lords and the King of kings. And I pray, I do pray. That you and I will grasp this glorious truth. Not only do we come marked by worship and obedience, but those, now watch, who not only this king who came to save us, but who by sovereign grace brought us to come to him alone as our Lord and Savior. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here's what I know. I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you. I'm asking you. I will do everything. I will pray for you. Come to Christ who came for you.
But I do know this. None of us will come to Christ who came for us unless Christ first comes to bring you to himself. They would have never, these kings would have never got to Jesus without Numbers 24 and the intervention of God's providence. And they would have never had Numbers 24 without the Babylonian captivity of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a political movement that I'm sure Israel was disappointed in that moment. Look at what God was setting up hundreds of years later through the captivity of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's the unseen hand of God at work. The unseen hand of God who is working to bring us to him who came for us that we would come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments that we can spend in this word. Lord, we're astonished. The length of the trip of these emissaries, the intentionality, the just the glorious uh, gospel gilded work of sovereign grace that you accomplished Not just hundreds of years, before the foundation of the world. To bring these magi to worship and to walk away another way in obedience. God, would you please do this again and again and again and again. And thank you for how you have done it again and again and again. Would you even do it these moments? I don't know who all's here. Those who know you, will you please allow them to know like never before, not only the majesty of the one who came to them, but the majesty and power of the one who came to them to bring them to come to him who came to save them. It is glorious. Salvation is from the Lord. You're not only the Savior who came for us, you're the Savior who brought us to yourself, the one who bought us for yourself. So we worship you. We adore you. We are grateful for the instruments that you use, like a Mary and a Joseph. But, oh God, we thank you for your word by your spirit who uses instruments to bring us to Jesus And we would worship him. So, Father, speak to hearts here. Encourage those who know you what you've done to save them. And would you give those a sense who have not yet come to you. You have them here today for a reason. You've come to bring them to hear of the one who came to save them. And may this day they come. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, 
Or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.